1: All right, our guest this week on the announcer schedule podcast, Phil. We're very excited. You know, uh, just to kind of peel the curtain back a little bit, uh, I had gotten an email uh, regarding Barry Tompkins, the Hall of Fame play-by-player, and uh, he's going to be in my hometown of Atlantic City this weekend. So when I text Phil, you know, we go back and forth for different guests for the podcast, and uh, we know football's this weekend, NFL. I said, hey, I got an opportunity to talk to – Barry Tompkins, are you interested? And he wrote back, wow, uh, of course. <laughs> so we have him right here, Barry Tompkins, and he's going to be in Atlantic City, Showbox, the new generation, Friday night, September the 9th, live on Showtime. It's the longest running boxing continuous series going. Nine o'clock at Bally's Atlantic City, right here in my hometown. Barry Tompkins, welcome to the announcer schedule podcast.
2: Uh, It's great to be with you guys. Thanks for having me.
1: Well, uh, give us a little background um, on the Showbox. And, you know, obviously, uh, boxing is how many of us know you. We're going to get into some of your other uh, career paths as well. But Showbox is still going. And uh, your voice synonymous with boxing for many people listening.
2: Well, I appreciate that. Showbox, you know, it's probably just in terms of, of sheer having fun. It's probably the most fun I've ever had doing television sports uh, and one of the reasons is that even though I've done some really you know big and important fights what I really like about this series is that we get to see guys on their way up who are trying to make that that step from prospect to contender you know and and what I like about this series is that almost every fight we do uh, obviously there are exceptions but almost every fight we do uh, you know I can't really go into a fight saying this person's going to win. There's always some question. I can always make a case for the B side of the card, winning that particular fight. And that's what I really like about the series. That's the mission of Showbox, And it's been going on for 22 years now. So, you know, obviously the show, and I've only been there for 11 of it, but, uh, but the show speaks for itself, you know, that it's longevity speaks to the quality of, of, uh, Fighter that we have on the air and, and the, the match-ups between the two fighters.
3: Barry, you mentioned big, important fights, and it can't help me but thinking back to November twelfth, nineteen 1982 at the Orange Bowl in Miami. I grew up in Miami, and I remember hearing about this one, how the, the Orange Bowl was absolutely rocking for Alexis Arguello in Aaron Pryor. Can you reflect back on that one, you know, back in, you know, down Memory Lane, prior Arguello? <laughs> My whole life is down Memory Lane.
2: Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, I that I mean I I will tell anybody who asked me that was the most exciting fight I've ever done and for several reasons, <clears throat> pardon me, it wasn't just about the fight itself, it was about the whole atmosphere of the fight leading up to the fight and it, for instance was it was a matchup of an inner-city African-American guy against a, a really a, a Hispanic folk hero uh, in Alexis Arguello. But what was particularly interesting about it is, of course, the fight was in South Florida, uh, with a very large Hispanic population. But at that time, there was a civil war going on in Nicaragua, and uh, Arguello supported – it was the Contras and the sandinistas uh, quite honestly, I can't remember which side he supported, but he, he was strongly and financially involved in one, one of the two sides of the civil war. And of course in, in Miami, that in itself was, was a problem because you had both sides there, you know? And so it was going to be a volatile situation. And these two guys couldn't have been more, could not have been more different in who they are and what they are and what they bring to the dance. And, uh, so they had decided early on that they they weren't – there was originally supposed to be fireworks before, and they weren't going to do that because they were really worried about you know somebody firing a gun someplace. And they decided to eliminate the anthems altogether because that could have been a problem, too, amongst supporters of either side of the Nicaraguan Civil War. So – it made it a volatile situation to begin with, and and one of the things, speaking to that, they, they of course, did do the fireworks. Somebody did the fireworks. I don't think they were authorized anyway, and we had just come on the air at that time. So the entire stadium was dark except for one light, and that light was on me, uh, and all of a sudden the fireworks go go off, and I'm thinking – You know, if it's a shooter someplace, they don't have any place to aim except at that light. You know, and I'm standing in front of it. So, you know, that was racing through my mind while we're trying to do the open of the show. And then, of course, the fight itself was a monumental, an epic fight. Arguably, the best, most action-packed fight I've ever done in my life. Uh, And. Speaking to that, neither fighter was ever the same after that fight, even in their return match. So it was special from a lot of different viewpoints. And uh, I remember coming out of out of that fight and just, you know, I could barely talk and barely. It was just it it took every emotion out of you. Uh, and in the end, Ar- Arguello. Uh, you know, got hurt, had to go to the hospital, and as I said, it was never the same after that. So, that that fight was was a real experience, and in terms of all the fights I've done over the course of my career, it stands out probably more than any other.
3: Uh, amazing, Barry, and just that era of boxing. You know, uh, and the fact that you were at so many of these big ones. You know, Sugar Ray Leonard, Hagler, Hearns. Mike Tyson, Hector Macho Camacho. I mean, the the personalities, that you know, just the the gravity of the boxing scene in the '80s, and you were there for so much of it. You know, what comes to mind when I just mention that era of boxing?
2: Luck is what comes to mind. You know, it's my in fact, my entire career has been built on standing in the right place at the right time. But uh, yeah, I feel so fortunate to have uh, not only been around in that time, but to have done those fights. I happened to, you know, luck out with getting a gig at HBO right almost when they were starting, and they had all the great fights of that whole era. Um, So it was an unbelievable opportunity for me, and, you know, it was one great fight after another. I mean, we did probably, I I would say, seven or eight fights a year, maybe 10 fights a year, and Every one of them was, you know, could be described as almost an epic fight. At the very least, there were at least a couple a year that are fights that people to this day still talk about. Uh,
1: Unbelievable stuff with Barry Tompkins here. You know, as I'm listening to you talk, I'm 45 years old, I hear. And we have a new era in boxing ringing in my head, of course, when Mike Tyson uh, knocked out Trevor Burbick. That was kind of uh, the moment for me uh that I became a boxing fan and uh still enjoy that and of course I'm in the Atlantic City area which is kind of synonymous with Philadelphia and many of our Philadelphia listeners to this podcast will recognize Barry's voice uh in Rocky 4 tell us a little bit about how you got selected uh to be the voice of Rocky 4 because you Barry probably know how popular a figure Rocky is in this region
2: Oh Absolutely. And, and in fact, you could say nationally, it's it, it, that again, I, as I mentioned to you earlier, my, my whole career is based on being in the right place at the right time on four or five different occasions. And, and, and that was one that really was a fluke. Interestingly enough, more, more people ask me about that than any fight I've ever done or any show I've ever done in any sport. Uh, I get asked about the Rocky movie more than anything else. Um, and it's, it just happened that I had two weeks off, and an agent called me. It wasn't even my agent. It was a friend of mine, agent, um, who actually is a baseball guy, Steve Fiziak, who does the Kansas City Royals. It was his agent that called me. They had asked him to do it originally, and he couldn't do it. It was the middle of baseball season. So he said, hey, Barry's a boxing guy. Call Barry. We're friends. So his agent called me, and I just happened to have – two weeks off, which at that time in my career was really unusual. I rarely had two weeks without a show, and uh, so I thought, well, you know, it'll be an interesting thing to do, and I've never been around, you know, the motion picture industry or actors or actresses or anything like that. It was completely foreign to me, so I thought, well, you know, it'll be it'll be something different, and uh, and it was something different, something I hated. You know, I'm used to, you know, I'm I'm, uh, I'm born to live television, you know, and the red light goes on, you start talking. The red light goes off, you say goodnight. Whereas in the movie industry, as you know, um, you know, it's take after take after take after take after take. So it took two weeks to do that 18-minute scene, Um, and after about three days, and he had to be there, you know, probably 12 hours a day, and because we were in the front row supposedly calling a fight, you know, you couldn't read a book or you couldn't do a crossword play. You couldn't do anything. Uh, so you had to just sit there all day long. And it was supposed to be compounded. It was supposed to be winter in Moscow. And if, if, where we did it, it was summer in Vancouver, British Columbia. <laughs> so, you know, so it was – you had to look like you were in winter conditions and it was 90 degrees outside. So – uh I, I hated every minute of it, to be really honest with you, because I thought, oh, my God, you know, why can't these people do this in one or two takes, you know?
0: Um,
2: so I, I wound up having great respect for some actors and no respect for others. Uh, I won't bore you with one scene, but there was one scene that went on. They did 32 takes of it. And the reason they had to do 32 takes is, I'll tell you who it was, it was Bridget Nielsen who played the part of Elon Drago's wife, and it was it was a scene where the the Russian manager had to come up on the ring apron and he did this diatribe uh, to his to his fighter. It was all in Russian, and the guy didn't speak Russian. He was an actor, you know, character actor. You've seen him a million times. I don't know his name. Thirty-two takes, and his he did it perfectly every time. It was about forty-five seconds. She stood up in the audience, and her line was yet. She, she booted yet 32 times. You know, I, I'm telling you, if there was a sharp object near me, I'd have, I'd have done, done myself in. You know, it was, I mean, it was just why am I here? What am I doing here? Uh, so uh, the upshot of it all was the way they edited the piece. Uh, I wound up being a principal. I don't know how all those union things work, but I wound up being a principal. So the money that I made, for the two weeks of time I spent there, which was not very much, compounded several times, several hundred times, actually, over uh, over the course of time. I still get checks
1: nice. for Rocky Forms 32 years ago. Wow.
2: So I hated the experience, but I love the end result.
1: Well, real quick on that, I, I, I've always wondered this for a, a, a role like that. Because you're a play-by-player and you're just used to calling live action, did they just have you call it as you saw it, or did you have a script of what to call,
2: you know that's a that's a very interesting question, and uh, and I hope I have an interesting answer. What's Salone? I, I had great respect. <clears throat> excuse me for Sylvester Stallone. Um, he really not only understood the part that he was playing, he understood the whole production and the whole how things worked. You know, and what he what he told me is uh, to to, uh, to back up a little bit. No, there was no script. Um, what he told me was do what you would normally do when you're calling a fight, but go 25% over the top, you know, and that's exactly what I did. And we did it in, actually the first take was good, but we, we did, you know, what they would call a safety. We did a second take and he said, that's fine. That's great. You know, uh, but I did exactly what he told me. So it was, yes, it was calling the fight in the same way that you would normally call a fight, but Normally, and it's not my style to really get hysterical over something, you know. Um, I mean, obviously, I think I can bring the drama to it, but not just get hysterical. But this was get hysterical, you know, and and hysterical over things that you wouldn't normally get hysterical over. So his direction really made it very easy for me. And I, I came away from that with really great respect for Sylvester Stallone.
0: Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app.
3: Barry, you, you mentioned right place, right time, you know, throughout your career, but, you know, the career had to start somewhere. And, you know, we love exploring sort of the origin stories of our, our guest here on the announcer schedules podcast. You're from San Francisco originally. Can you tell us how you got started in the business? Yeah.
1: Yes. A fluke. <laughs> <laughs>
2: More luck. I, I actually, More luck for Barry. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I hate to say that. I'd like to tell you it was sheer talent and I... Just was better than anybody else, and that's absolutely wrong. You know, um, I am I, going to try to paraphrase it because it's kind of a long story. But I was working at a radio station, and I was hired there. I I started. I was always a writer, and I started as uh, in advertising as a copywriter. And I hated. I wound up hating the advertising business, and so I got hired by KPIX. Uh, I'm sorry, KCBS Radio in San Francisco. Uh, as promotions director so i was writing on-air promos you know and uh at that time i was a huge sports fan so i the sports director there used to do three or four commentaries every day so i got in his face almost from the day i got there telling him how, how what a big sports fan i was and how that's really what i wanted to do and can i write your commentaries for you or at least write a couple of commentaries i you know, I'm a writer. I know how to do that. I can do all that kind of stuff. And I, I think I was just his grill so much that he finally hired me just to get me out of his face. You know, <laughs> and uh, and subsequent to that, so he, you know, he taught me really. His name was Don Klein. He's gone now, but he uh, he basically everything I do today I learned from from him. Um, and I got into television on an absolute fluke, and it came after the general manager at KCBS said, you're never going to make it radio because you don't have a voice for it. So I knew I was about to lose my job in radio. And I have to be at lunch in San Francisco with a guy named Hank Greenwald. I, I doubt is too familiar to you, but he did the giants and he did the warriors. And in fact, for a year or two, he did the New York Yankees. He was mostly a baseball guy. And, uh, and Franklin Neely, who at that time was the owner of the Golden State Warriors. And, um, uh, And Hank told me, hey, I just turned down a job at KPIX, television. Uh, He was a real radio guy, hated television. He said, why don't you call this guy? He gave me the program director's number, and I went back to my office, and I called the guy, and he said, when can you come over? And I said, well, I get off of work at whatever time it was, and he said, okay, come over then. So that very day, same day I had lunch, I went over to the program director at KPIX, and he was a young guy, uh, another guy that was going to reinvent television, which we've seen, I don't know how many hundred times. <laughs> and uh, and he uh, he said, do you have anything you could read? And I happened to have a commentary that I'd written for Don Klein in my briefcase. And so I said, yeah, I've got this. I wrote it for Don. He said, read it. And I read the commentary, and he said, okay, three shows a day, $18,000 a year, and that tripled my salary. <laughs> And that's how I got into television. My first night on the air in television was the first time I'd ever been inside a television station.
3: Outstanding, Barry, and, you know, the the rest is history, no doubt about it. But I had to share with you one thing. You know, back in 1990, I was an 18-year-old version of myself. I was at the University of Florida in Gainesville, and I would stay up late every Monday night, For Big Monday on ESPN, you know, Big East, Big Uh, Ten, and then a Big West game late that, you know, you were so often on the call. And, you know, being on the East Coast, you know, there was sort of like this dreamy feeling about it all that I was up that late watching college hoops and and in these locations.
2: If you were at the University of Florida, I suspect most of your life was dreamy. <laughs> you know?
3: yeah, good point, but uh, but yeah, you know to see my, these locations. My wife went to the University of Florida, so <laughs> that's right. So you're well aware, yeah. <laughs> But um, but yeah, I mean, it was just so so endearing to me that you know that college basketball was being played in these cool venues, you know, out west in the the Big West. Plus, UNLV was at you know the height of their powers, and we we actually played a clip earlier in our our program a UNLV UC um uh UCSB game where there was a yeah. big upset. Can you reflect back just on that those Big West games and you know that sort of moment in time?
2: Yeah and and you said it I mean UNLV was they were the real deal. That was during the time they were national championships. But you mentioned UCSB Santa Barbara and they were almost as good. In fact they they beat at their place. They beat UNLV almost every time. They were really good at that time. And um and so that and we wound up doing you know, a home and home almost every year because that was the biggest game. And what was then, I don't even know if it was the Big West. I want to say it was, it had another name. But, um, but yeah, those were, they were high energy games. And at that time, all in New Mexico State was in that conference. They were very good. They won 25 or 30 games every year. Um, Utah State was very good. Um, so it was a great conference and and it was a it was a ton of fun and we knew frankly because I think we started if i'm not mistaken at like nine o'clock Pacific, so it would have been midnight in Florida, and we knew a lot of our audience was eighteen year old people like yourself, college students who were you know being up all night you know and uh and I think we played to that a lot uh so it was great fun i really I really did enjoy doing those games because they were they were sellouts and people would line, especially at places like New Mexico State, people would start lining up for tickets at noon. And by the time tip-off came, everybody in the place was just crazed, you know, and not to mention drunk. But, <laughs> um, yeah, you know, so it, there was a real a real atmosphere and it was really a lot of fun to do those games. You know, I spent 35 years. I mean, I'm a West Coast guy, although I spent six years in New York. But, um, but I'm a West Coast guy, so I, I've always been partial to, you know, the Pac-12 Conference, which I did for 35 years in both football and basketball, and, uh, and doing those games for ESPN. When I was at ESPN, you know, they I did all a lot of West Coast Conference games, I, uh, West Coast Conference, Pac-12, and what was that? I want to say it was the PCAA or something like that, Pacific Coast Conference. I can't remember, but, um, but yeah, I've, I've – uh, I've got a ton of stuff out there, and that was those games are one of the highlights, really.
1: Uh, Barry Tompkins, uh, Showbox, The New Generation, back Friday night, September the 9th, live on Showtime at 9 o'clock from Bally's Atlantic City Hotel and Casino. I guess I selfishly asked you, Barry, since I am from Atlantic City, uh, which has not had uh, a major fight back here in some time. I mean, we've kind of lost the fights in this city, but – um, I'm sure you have been here plenty of times. What made or makes Atlantic City uh, such a cool boxing town uh, from back in the day? It was great here uh, growing up when these fights were here all the time. Mike Tyson was here, and Evandra Holyfield, and Foreman, and we had uh, Gotti. Those fights, the trilogy with Mickey Ward, uh, we had some great ones here. What made Atlantic City such a great fight town?
2: Yeah, you know, I wish I had the answer for you. I'm not. I'm not really sure what the secret ingredient was. I can tell you it's not there anymore. Um, you know, and it's, I I don't know. I don't really, I I think the casinos in Connecticut probably heard it, you know, because I think people from New York now go to Connecticut rather than come to, to Atlantic city. So, you know, predominantly it's people from Philadelphia or that part of New Jersey, you know, who, who go to these things. And it's a lot of bus tours. And I always found it quite frankly, um, to be a pretty depressing place because because of all the all the busts, you know, people would come there with twenty or thirty or fifty dollars in their pocket, and they'd lose it in ten minutes, and they'd sit around the rest of the day, you know, <laughs> sucking on ice cubes, you know, and because the bus didn't leave until ten o'clock that night or whatever it was, so I it. Frankly, and I, I hear I am dissing your hometown, and I apologize for
1: it. But, uh, <laughs> no, we're well aware. We're we're always- sad that the fights aren't here. Uh, we wish there were more. Where we always get excited when we get something uh, back in the town. You know, it, it is sad that uh, it's kind of fallen apart to this uh, to this nature because it was such a great. As I mentioned, I mean, I, I saw so many great fights here growing up.
2: Yeah, there were a lot of great fights. We were there all the time, especially when I was when I was at ESDN, it seemed like we were there every other week. And and for somebody from the West Coast, it's a very difficult place to get to. You know, I gotta fly Philadelphia and then it's an hour and a half or hour and twenty minutes or whatever it is drive. And if you go in traffic or in the wintertime when there's snow, it could be three hours. <laughs> you know. So it was just getting there for from the West Coast was a difficult task, you know. And then to make it worse, going back, uh the only nonstop flight to San Francisco at that time was at six o'clock in the morning. So you don't get off the air until midnight, and and you got now you got to make that hour and a half drive the next morning or that night, and your flight's at six o'clock. So it it was it was always a tough place for a West Coast guy, but um, but there were some great fights there. Yeah, and, you know, it's, I've always said it's the kind of place, and there are others like it. Once you're there, it's great.
1: Well, Barry, uh, you've done it all, man. The Hall of Fame, boxing voice, college basketball, football, French Open, uh, many other tennis tournaments, track, field, swimming, diving, gymnastics. You've been on just about every network, uh, networks that are gone and now – uh, the the whack the Mountain West, Fox, ESPN, you portrayed USA. I don't know that you you said luck. You might be the luckiest guy we've ever had on the podcast.
2: <laughs> yeah, and I'm out of networks, you know, so maybe it's time to retire. I don't know.
1: And by the way, <laughs> yeah. how many people remember Barry, uh, the HBO show, Phil, Race for the Pennant? Barry was a co-host on that baseball program. That's right. How
2: yeah, people- with, with your ex-Philly, Tim McCarver.
1: That's right. How about that? A little HBO taking us back. Bob Gibson, uh, I think, was uh, Len Berman, too, might have made an appearance on their show. There you go. We spanned it all with Barry Tompkins. Uh, Atlantic City this weekend, boxing fans, check that out. Showbox the next generation. Boxing seems to make a little bit of a revival, and Showbox the longest-running continuous boxing series out there. And here is the voice, Barry Tompkins. Barry, we appreciate having you on so much. We appreciate all your time.
2: Absolute pleasure, Mike Phil. Great to be with you
1: guys. Okay, thank you, Barry. There is Barry Tompkins, Phil, and we appreciate him jumping on board uh, this week's edition of the Announcer Schedule Podcast. What do we think? We th- we got it all. I mean, he hates Rocky, he hates Atlantic City, but he loves everything else. No, it was a phenomenal conversation. I thoroughly enjoyed listening to those stories.
3: Ph- phenomenal, no doubt about it. I mean. Um it's so many huge moments that he's called over the years and not to mention that, that college basketball side of things. He's one of my all time favorites. There's no doubt about it. And it's, you know, I'm not a huge boxing fan. I was back in the day, you know, in terms of, you know, back in the eighties and nineties when he was calling those. So there is some nostalgia there for me, but it's, it's truly the the basketball that, that I relate him to the most, just because I was so loyal to those late night games um, during my college years, watching the, those matchups from out West. And, you know, it kind of gave me this sort of, um, you know, uh, love of, of all things California. Like I, I always kind of wanted to go out there and visit these places that he would be broadcasting from. They seem like just, you know, the, the, the other side of, you know, the country, obviously, but just, you know, a whole different world culturally and all that. And he he was just so smooth with it all. You know, we played that clip earlier with – with him and, and Quinn Buckner, and yeah, I mean, what a interview, what a, what is, uh, you know, the storytelling he has, that the, the you know, the, the humility of it all, you know, considering all the places that he's been, and, you know, just thoroughly enjoyed that, and, and can't thank Barry uh, enough for, for joining us today.
1: You mentioned uh, the fight prior, Aguayo, uh, back in 82. Let's uh, just kind of bring our listeners, just to kind of get a a sense, a feel of Barry Tompkins on that call.
2: Aaron Pryor has been known to charge out at the opening bell, round one. Pryor with the first punch. He scores with a right hand. Up tempo, right from the opening bell. Well, I wouldn't be surprised if someone gets knocked down in the first round.
1: Pryor, perpetual motion. He is right on top of Arguello, who gets off the ropes. Crowd already starting to cheer. Arguello with a right
2: hand that scores on Pryor, who's laying. Buckle for a moment. Pryor seems to be hurt. Alex went to the body and was able to hurt Clark for a while, which is exactly what Larry Merchant was just mentioning.
1: Okay, uh, just a little insight there just to give you a little bit of the sound, the feel of the energy in that fight. He also called the Hearns Hagler, which is some regard as the greatest round in the history of boxing. So uh, Barry has done all. He said he still recognized more for Rocky Four, though, than anything else. Yeah, Rocky
3: Four. You know, nineteen eighty-five is his big acting debut, and yeah, I remember that one again. Like, kind of aging myself, but I was I was thirteen years old, and I remember going, I think on on opening night to the theater with the my brother um, and seeing Rocky Four, and you know, the fact that Barry you know had a big role in that one as the USA Network sportscaster, very cool. And and wow, what some serious backstories as far as you know how that works in terms of Hollywood.
1: All right, Phil. So uh, that's about it for us. Episode 14 in the books. Have a great NFL Week 1. We will be back next week right here on the announcer schedules podcast. For Phil, I'm Mike. Have a great week, everybody.